0: the studios of kpcw in park city this is cool science radio it's science and technology that's accessible and entertaining and if
1: we can understand it so will you i'm lynn ware peak and i'm katie mulally and this morning our cool science co-host john wells talks with matthew williams founder and director of hate lab and a professor of criminology he has written the science of hate how prejudice becomes hate and what we can do to stop it then we speak with Teresa West. She is the chief commercial
0: officer for a company called Patient Discovery, which advances healthcare technology to create innovative ways to give more access and equity for better healthcare outcomes.
2: I'm John Wells. I'm here with Linware Peak. Our next guest is Matthew Williams, who's the founder and director of Hate Lab and a professor of criminology. He's written a fascinating new book, The Science of Hate, how Prejudice Becomes Hate, and What We Can Do to Stop It. Matthew Williams, welcome to Cool Science Radio. Thanks, John. It's a pleasure to be here. We are delighted to have you with us this morning, and your book is meticulously researched and deeply personal to you as you were a victim of a hate crime. Can you talk about this incident and how it motivated you to be a criminologist and to write this book? Sure.
3: It's where it all started. Um, I, I just finished my degree um, in the UK and was celebrating with friends in London. Um, I was outside a bar. It happened to be a gay bar. Um, A a guy approached me, asked me for a light. I obliged. And the next thing I know, I was on the ground looking up um, with a split lip. I could taste the tang of blood in my mouth and I realized I'd been, I'd been hit. Um, And there were other guys there too. Basically it was a gang of three men. um, And I wasn't aware what really happened apart from being victimized. And then, one of them spat out a homophobic slur. And in that moment, I realized that I was a victim of a, a anti-gay hate crime. And interestingly, it, it kind of, it, it obviously affected me psychologically, but it also affected me in a professional sense too. I did want to become a journalist after my undergrad, but I knew that journalism wouldn't have the answers I had in my head um, implanted there from the victimization to understand what the motivations were of my attackers and where they came from. So I changed course and, and studied criminology instead. And criminology was the right discipline because it's what they call a liaison discipline. It tends to draw on all available science to try and understand a particular form of human behavior. Um, so, So during the course of my my PhD, but also the 20 years after the PhD, I delved into neuroscience, uh, biology, chemistry, right the way through to economics, politics, sociology, and ended up looking at uh, AI and data science to try and understand um, the causes and consequences of hate and how it looks in in modern day society and how it's been changed by technology. And, And the book tries to encapsulate all of that information in a really accessible way. it's it's meant to be read by the everyday person. it's not meant to be an academic book at all. Um, and it's it's peppered with lots of <clears throat> um, case studies. Um, so there's lots of real life case studies that bring the science to life and the aim of the book is to try and uh, try and try and educate uh, us all really on on the dangers of hatred, where it comes from, where it can end up, and how we can do something about it, and over twenty
2: years ago, when uh, the hate crime was was uh, uh, you, you know happened, there wasn't a classification for that. It was classification would be some sort of an assault to your body. yeah, uh, but you know i'm I'm curious how often today, now that we have these classifications, how often today are the classifications uh, done incorrectly, where uh, somebody reports something but they don't put it in the right bin? Yes.
3: Yeah, so when I was victimized, the legislation wasn't in place to recognize homophobic hate crime. It was, um, that meant that I couldn't report it as a hate crime. I could have reported it as a crime against my body, you're correct. But in fact, the relationship then between, the gay community and the police wasn't great there was a history of entrapment for 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 many years uh before my victimization that meant that I I didn't trust the police to really deal with my my report in a in a in a serious way and I didn't want to come out to the police so there's this there's this constant problem with hate, hate crime reporting where communities that are affected are very often victimized by the police themselves. And we see this a lot in the US uh, and black communities, for example, with sort of the shooting of unarmed black men by by white and black officers. Um, and you know, that mars the relationship. But your question about categories and and where they fall is a really important one because very often um motivations for hate crime can be uh uh can cross dividing lines. So for example, you can be attacked for being uh a, a certain identity, but you may have multiple identities. So it's sometimes hard to figure out which one you've been attacked for. You can be black and gay and disabled uh, and trans, for example. And trying to figure out which one of those identities was was the primary motivation for your attack is obviously very difficult because you can't leap into the mind of the attacker and try to understand what the mens rea was or what was the what was the reason for the attack. All you can say is I know I was attacked because of who I am and the intersection of the identities that I have. Well,
2: it's certainly complex because the person could have hated gay people. The person could have been trying to prove his own personal masculinity. The person may have been trying to prove his stature in this three-person group. I mean, it, I mean, the whole thing is just complex as far as how it happens
3: and why it happens. Absolutely, and, and all those possibilities Uh, went through my head as I was trying to figure out why me. Um, And I still don't have the answer to the question, why me in that situation? I certainly have more answers than I started with, obviously. And so more generally speaking, I now understand how prejudice can tip into hatred in certain individuals, but pinpointing specifically within a certain individual why a prejudice might turn to hatred is actually really difficult to do, and we aren't—we haven't got the science yet to to adequately figure that out. I mean, if we could do that, we'd be in this kind of minority uh, report style system, right, where we're able to say, right, we know that your prejudices are at a certain level and they could tip into hatred under the right set of circumstances, so we'll be watching you. And I talk a bit about that in the book because I do a lot of um, writing about neuroscience and and how we can scan brains to identify how different parts of the brain might uh, react to certain stimuli, in this case, the the vision of seeing black versus white faces. Now there there are parts of the brain that can activate, and in fact, I went into a brain scanner myself uh, for the book, and I was part of an experiment where I was viewing black and white faces, and my brain did react differently to to black faces versus white faces, and it was really quite destabilizing knowing that that was happening. I had to speak to the neuroscientist afterwards to understand what was going on there, and she explained very eloquently that. We learn uh, uh, to react in certain ways to certain stimuli through culture and that culture very often isn't something you can control. You're just subjected to it through TV, socialization, etc. But ultimately the brain learns from that. But you can start to see the emergence of behavior in brain patterns in these scanning technologies, which kind of edges us towards thinking in terms of those kind of minority report type predictions about behaviors and what the brain is doing, um, which I argue against uh, quite emphatically in the book, because I don't think that's where we should be going. And in fact, I know that, Brain scans are not admissible in criminal courts because they're prejudicial. They're, right. they're, they're, they're far too, uh, that we don't know enough about them yet. The science is still in its infancy and juries can be prejudiced by them. So we don't allow them in the courtroom for that reason. And I, I also think that we shouldn't be doing, we shouldn't solely rely on things like brain scans to figure out racism because at the end of the day, things like racism and homophobia are social constructions, right? They are, they are things that are, that have emerged because of Of society as such. And the brain plays a part, but it's only a small part of that equation. Yeah. Uh, During COVID, uh, there were more
2: hate crimes that were committed against Asians because for some reason, some people, some part of the population thought that Asians were responsible for us getting COVID in this country. Uh, My daughter is uh, adopted from South Korea and a young woman who was uh, jogging uh in Maine and a guy went by in a pickup truck very slowly it's a very rural area and about 5 minutes later the pickup truck showed up again and he he slowed down rolled down his window and uh yelled some some uh some profanity and telling her that she needs to go back to her country and uh she was shook up by it and she didn't even want to call the police and i yeah. suspect that there are uh groups in our country that are targeted that have trouble reporting this for various reasons so the numbers mm. are not going to be accurate is that is that possible
3: well just to start off by saying i'm really sorry that she had to go through that and it's it's a horrible thing to have to face up when your identity is targeted in that way you feel it's so destabilizing it it's it's really horrendous so i'm really sorry that happened Um, But you're right. I think reporting it to the police in certain contexts is not an option for some people because they feel like they could be subject to secondary victimization. Maybe they may not be taken seriously. Um, And it certainly was the case with me when I when I didn't report my victimization 20 years ago. Um, But, yeah, that massively impacts uh, the, the ability for state agencies to to accurately record how big a problem this actually is. Um, and some of the research I cover in the book evidence is that the, you know, the, the 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 police killings of unarmed black men actually worsens reporting rates, because ultimately what you end up seeing in communities up and down the country in the US is that trust goes down in the police. Um, and even when hate crimes happen, any crimes, in fact, happen that involve a black victim, the chances of them reporting to the police plummet after a a shooting of that nature. And we see so many of these shootings that it's no surprise that the hate crime figures look so low in the States compared to other countries. I had not heard of the Don Black
2: uh, creation of the fake martinlutherking.org website Happened, Don Black being a white supremacist. Until I read your book, and it's just fascinating. Well, can you yeah. can you tell us about that?
3: Well, the end of the book really focuses in on the internet and its emergence in the so the domestic emergence of it in the nineteen nineties. And the Stormfront website that I refer to in the book, um, as you as you said, was was run by uh, the Blacks and uh, the Black family, and was an attempt to increase their numbers exponentially and and the idea was that if we make their idea was if we make use of this technology we can coordinate in a way that we've never been able to before and and they were onto something they they had recognized the transformational capability of the internet to further their sort of white supremacist cause and it worked they set up the stormfront website website and uh, their numbers grew pretty rapidly to about 300,000 at, at this peak, which is a terrifying number of people. Um, the website was a, was a haven for hatred and intolerance. The forums on there expressed very distasteful uh, viewpoints and opinions, as you can imagine. But they went a step further than that, too. And they started to infiltrate or create fake websites like the one you just described, the, the Dr. Martin Luther King site that was... Disguised as a bona fide, bona fide website in in praise of of King, um, that would be uh, leaflets would be sent around schools um, promoting the website on on Martin Luther King Day, so kids would go onto the website and there were things like quizzes. Uh, uh, and, and other facts that, or fake facts, I should say, about about King and his history, that tried to undermine his credibility. But they did it in such a, a devious way. It, it's one of the first cases of online disinformation that we've we've got we've got on record. Really, um, disinformation. Now we're all very familiar with myths and disinformation sure. around the COVID pandemic. But this was back in the in the nineties. It was one of the very first cases. Um, it's very little spoken about. You don't really hear about it. You said you hadn't heard about it. Um, I hadn't really been familiar with it before I started researching for the book. I had to go back on the Wayback Machine, which is an internet archive, to find uh, instances of the site that has now been removed. But yes, uh, that website was viewed by literally thousands of young people who thought it was a bona fide website. and. Uh, Who knows what kinds of of damage it has done. But those tactics that were born uh, uh, from that endeavor are still being used today um, on other forums like Discord, which is a big gaming forum, and Twitch, which is another big gaming forum. And the far right are actually trying to recruit from the forums where they know young people are more likely to go. And of course, young people are probably the most impressionable folks out there um uh, they're they're very listless very often they're transitioning from uh say home to school uh they may not have any uh, sort of bonds in terms of relationships they're kind of free floating in many ways so they're they're ripe for um i guess recruiting into into these kinds of far-right cultures um and and the kinds of tactics being used by the far-right and white supremacists are terrifying when it comes to their uh, sort of internet capabilities uh and technical uh, capabilities well it's just fascinating
2: yeah and as i said i had not heard of it uh Uh, You know, before we have done a number of shows on artificial intelligence, and Mm. we mostly focus on what the possibilities are and what's going on today and what some of the challenges are and applications that are helping people in in medical and in all sorts of different areas. Um, What have, have have the bullies that were out in the street that somehow got involved in the computer science side? Have they have they gotten involved in the A.I. side? I assume that they have.
3: Well, yeah, it's it's just another tool, isn't it? And 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 criminals are are probably amongst the most innovative um, tool makers and users you you can get. Um, they innovate with these technologies to to further their agendas, whatever they might be, to make money or to recruit into far right groups, or whatever it might be. So yes, um, we've seen um, groups of all sorts around the world game algorithms. So they will use algorithms that embedded inside sort of Google search to make sure that their websites appear at the top of the list when you do a search. Um, they have gamed algorithms that try to identify hate speech. So for example, they will undermine them in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, so they they will learn how AI is trying to find their content and then react to it defensively. So in a sense, all of a sudden you're seeing a change in change in behavior to avoid detection and so on. So yes, it's AI is is part of the solution of trying to find these groups and trying to understand their dynamics and and trying to find hate speech. But it's also being used uh, against that effort as well, as you can imagine. So yes, I mean we can't we can't exist without it. We need the artificial intelligence mm. to do the kind of work for us of detecting hate speech at scale, um, just to understand, you know, when when patterns are changing and if we're seeing spikes in hate speech, why might that be the case? Um, but at the same time, they can be re-engineered for nefarious purposes. And we're seeing that, for example, with the uh, internet research agency in russia so they're meddling and interference in in us elections potentially uh, but also the brexit process in the uk they they were using ai machine learning and other forms of online tech to undermine democracy you know and so it's not just individual actors it's state actors as well yeah. I wonder who has better algorithms, the good guys or the bad guys.
2: It's, yeah. uh, oh, it's, it's, it's constantly. Exactly. So um, Matthew, your book is meticulously researched. And as you wrote this book, what most surprised you
3: as you went around the world, putting this book mm. together? There was one story that really stayed with me and it's a positive story. And I think the important point to to make is that this book, while it deals with a very dark subject, at its heart it's got hope in it and and it ends on a really uplifting note. But there was this one case uh, which struck me from the UK, but it may be familiar to some extent with with uh, uh, your your readers or listeners, I should say because it was a study done by an academic out of Stanford in Yale. Um, and it was in relation to Mo Salah, the Premier League football player who plays for Liverpool FC. So Mo Salah joined Liverpool Football Club in 2017. Um, in the in the midst of a string of terror attacks. It was the worst year of terror in the UK. Um, so as you can imagine, hate crimes against Muslims on the streets and hate speech online against Muslims was at an all-time high. We'd never seen uh rates like it. But Mo Salah joined uh, uh uh, Liverpool Football Club in the midst of all this and he is very publicly a Muslim player um, originally from Egypt and he he would very clearly um, demonstrate his his uh, 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 Muslimism on the pitch. Every time he scored, he would pray to Allah. He would bring his wife onto the pitch and his daughter. um, They'd be in headscarves. So very clearly he was Muslim. Um, And very interestingly, hate speech online and hate crimes on the streets of Merseyside were the only ones not to spike during that period. And this study put it down to the fact that most Allah was performing so well for the team. He won the Golden Boot that year with the highest scoring player. He had, he was he was a key part of the success of Liverpool FC in that period. And that completely turned around hate crime statistics for that region. But only that region. Around that region, they, they continued to spiral. So what it demonstrated was, was that Mo Salah's positive portrayal of Muslim identity undid some negative stereotyping, even in the face of those terror attacks that were fanning the flames of hate against Muslims in that time period. So what it demonstrates, I think, is that there is a powerful way to undo prejudice, even in the face of of such adversity as was 2017 in the UK. If you can show a person with that identity in a positive light. Now, I'm not saying that we need more Mosala's. We can't do we can't replicate Mosala. We can't we can't scale up Mosala so we can we can see that effect sort of roll out across the country. What it does say to us though is prejudice is something that can be removed under the right yes. circumstances. Well obviously there are Liverpool fans all over the country, but there's a massive concentration in Merseyside itself. So mm-hmm. there was a diffusion of benefits beyond beyond um beyond the city, but it was concentrated I- in the city in terms of the data. Um, what you did find, however, was that the rate of anti Muslim hatred expressed by opposing teams when Mosala was doing really well and defeating their teams was was skyrocketing so you had you had a bit of a sort of that kind of weigh in scale situation where you had a reduction in in merseyside because he was performing so well uh but an increase in anti-muslim hatred uh, on the opposing team side, the fans from the opposing teams, because of that, because of how 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 much he was he was causing damage to their to their prospects. Um, so it, it was a double a double edged coin, and that but that's reflective of society in in many yeah. ways.
2: If you're just joining us on Cool Science Radio, we are speaking with Matthew Williams, and he has written the science of hate: how prejudice becomes hate, and what we can do to stop it. Uh, why don't we start talking about that? About what are what are some of the things that we can do to uh slow this down, uh possibly stop it?
3: Sure. So I end the book um with a section called The Seven Steps to Stop Hate. It's a it's a bit like uh a guide, a manifesto of sorts to encourage people to look inward and understand their own capacity for prejudice and then look outward and and to and to do things to to jump into action when they see prejudice. And hate. So the first thing is um, recognize that we are super threat detecting machines and our brains are designed to detect threat wherever we see it. It's kept us alive um, for millions of years. Our species is where it is today because we are those super threat detecting machines. But we have to understand when our threats are triggered uh, uh, under a false alarm. And so when we are told that, uh, an opposing group to us is in some way threatening. Say, for example, we're told that immigrants are a threat to our, our way of life. We must question who is sending us that message and try to figure out whether or not that person or that group has something to benefit from our reaction to it. So just becoming aware of our threat detection, uh, uh um, uh, proclivity and then, and then working against the, the, the abuse of that or the weaponization of that by others. Working on your stereotypes. So figuring out that your brain is a category making machine and it's a miser. It's not very, it's not very good with its (laughs) bandwidth. It doesn't like to spend too much energy working things out if it doesn't have to. So we're constantly taking shortcuts and that's, that's where stereotypes and negative stereotypes come from. So one of the arguments I make is like always reflect on your, your, your first impressions of others and never let that be your last impression because ultimately you're probably wrong. Um, a big one is positive comp- contact research shows that if kids have lots of contact with different groups when they're growing up in school they express a lot less prejudice later on when they're adults so this positive contact with people of different color skin different genders different sexual orientations uh whatever it might be more of that contact more frequently as young as possible, we'll see a reduction in prejudice further down the line, and you can still do this with adults. So there's been many. There's been there's been, two hundred and fifty studies done on this across the world with two hundred and fifty thousand people in thirty eight countries. All of the studies show that positive contact reduces prejudice, and most the Mo Salah story is is, is evidence of that positive contact. Mo portrayed a positive image of Muslimism to the fans. That's a form of positive contact. The other things I talk about are, are having compassion and empathy for people different from you. Put yourself in their shoes. Imagine what it is to be like them. Would you swap places with them? If not, why not? Um, don't overreact to divisive events. If there's an election or there's a terror attack, question what messages you're receiving from people who have something to gain from polarizing population stoking division um and lastly is responsabilization make it your responsibility to call out hate when you see it online or on the streets, but do it safely i think if more of us took action instead of just scrolling on by or walking on by that we would see a change in behavior and some early research studies that we've done shows that in in about 30 percent of cases People who spread hate speech online actually stop if they're challenged in the moment. So that's actually a really yeah. encouraging finding. So I mean, if you scale that up to the to the millions, that's a lot of lot of hate speech that's being stopped.
2: Well, there's a lot there that you've just taken us through, and I love the science behind it, and I love uh, and, and these are not really difficult things to do. We can all do these. We can yeah. do these. Matthew, you're the founder of, we only have a couple minutes left, uh, but I wanted to talk about the Hate Lab. You are the founder and the director of the Hate Lab. Can you uh, d- take you know 30 seconds or so and just tell us about sure. it? Sure.
3: So we know that the big uh, social media giants have access to very powerful artificial intelligence um, that makes money for them. Uh, we turn that artificial intelligence on its head and use it to uh, monitor how much hate speech is on each platform and then we can use that to hold platforms to account and we also supply that technology to civil society organizations and governments so they can hold social media to account so the whole point of hate lab is to use those technologies that have been developed in these massive corporations turn it on its head so then we can empower citizens to hold them to account when they aren't doing enough about hate speech
2: Matthew Williams has advised TikTok, Twitter, Instagram, Google, double E, British Telecom. Deutsche Telekom, the Professional Footballers' Association, the UK, the UK Home Office, and the United States Department of Justice, all on the topic of hate. We're speaking with him this morning about the science of hate, his book, how prejudice becomes hate, and what we can do to stop it. And Matthew, I thank you for writing the book, and really thank you for being with
3: us this morning on Cool Science Radio. Uh, thanks, John. That's really kind of you. I've loved every minute.
1: I'm Lynn Ware Peak. And I'm Katie Mullally. A healthcare
0: technology company like Patient Discovery believes that to meaningfully advance health equity, they need to merge the patient's life outside of a clinical setting with their clinical care path. They call it connecting life to care. And joining us this morning is Patient Discovery's chief commercial officer, Teresa West, who will tell us the story of health equity and why healthcare technology is making such huge advances in this area. Teresa, welcome to Cool Science Radio.
2: Thank
4: you. I'm very excited to be here. Well, we're excited to have you,
0: and I I think it's so important for our listeners and for all of us to understand exactly how healthcare technology is improving access to healthcare and also health equity. But maybe let's start with health equity. What is it?
4: Okay, so I'm going to give you what I would consider to be the definition, and then I'm going to give you a real-life example, which I really think kind of brings it to life. So if you even go online and you Google it, you look up health equity, it will say something along the lines of health equity means giving each person what they need so they can have access to the same level of care. Now, there's another term that's out there as well, and that is health justice. And that is focused on identifying and removing the obstacles. Now, let me give you a a real life example. So let's say that you have a family, the dad is six foot, the mom is five two, the daughter's in a wheelchair, and they have a son who plays baseball. I know this seems odd, but this is going somewhere. So the family is super excited to watch their son play in the state baseball championship game. So they arrive at the field and they find that there has been a five and a half foot wooden fence installed. Now, the kind that you can't see between the slats. So for the dad, it's no problem. For the mom and the daughter, they're disappointed because they can't see the game. The equal solution would be to have there are three boxes there, so everybody has you know the opportunity you know to see the game. But there's still a problem with that. So the equity solution would be to stack the boxes on top of each other, so the mom can see over the fence. For the daughter in the wheelchair, it would be to install a ramp with a platform on top, so she can roll up and see the see the game. Now, the justice part of that solution would be to remove the wooden fence and find a better solution that provides access for all. So although that's not an example from a healthcare situation, when you think about the life of the individuals and the challenges that they face and every person and every family has a different situation, you can hopefully relate about what that would mean from an equity and a justice situation
0: well when we look at that sort of example that applies to all things regarding social equity and and as you're saying now healthcare equity but what is the situation outside of just access you know the ability to have health insurance for example many have substandard insurance and then that really limits their access but i have a feeling that healthcare equity is referring to a whole world of things beyond health insurance
4: absolutely you know when you think about the different types of situations or details that can impact care it's there really is no end <clears throat> there are lots of current findings and studies you know that are out there that say that 80 to 90% of a person's health journey is impacted by non medical factors. So social workers, community health workers, community based organizations, people that have really lived deep into the public health space, you know, they've lived in this world of addressing what we now call, you know, social determinants of health. They're very familiar with it. But with COVID this term has really risen to the top of conversations, whether it is in regard to local situations and supportive community based organizations or even addressing policy. But so, social determinants of health, from a definition standpoint, you know, relates to, and again, if you look it up, you know, on Google, it would be the conditions in which people are born, grow, live, work, and age. You know, they include everything, like you said, beyond just the insurance aspect, which is critically important, but socioeconomic status, education, neighborhood, fiscal environment, employment, social support services, as well as access to care. So when you're thinking about those things, we're talking about employment status and income, housing, And when you think about housing, it's not just, do you have a house or are you homeless? It's things such as, do you have mold? Do you have infestation of some part? Um, The inability to pay your rent. Transportation is not necessarily do you have a car, but do you have a support system that can step in to help you with transportation, education, literacy, access to healthy foods, not just food in general. And then I think a part that people often don't think about is the social support system. You know, it's proven that when someone is actively engaged in a community of some sort, you know, whether it is a spiritual community, just a local type of organization, that their health is better, their stress is lower. Behavioral health comes into play. And then, like you said, health coverage, but not only that, but the availability and role areas. Um, language barriers, you know, for people who transition across the country, um, and then the quality of care that they're receiving. So it does go is a big net. And everything that I just mentioned has a direct impact on outcomes of healthcare, the cost of healthcare, and just the overall health, not for today, but even for those future generations to follow.
1: So we found during the pandemic there was stark differences to access to healthcare specifically in rural areas like you were just saying and having access to healthcare is a big element of of health equity but we do all have cell phones and it's been amazing to watch the expanse or the growth of telehealth when you can you know get onto your phone and contact your doctor are you working with a lot of these health equity programs in expanding telehealth because we may not have access to a doctor or a clinic, but we all have a phone. Right.
4: And, you know, the expansion of telehealth, excuse me, you know, has been, you know, very positive, especially in those situations, just like you described. What we do at Patient Discovery as part of that process is we give access to a very unique relational experience for a patient. and possibly their caregiver within the home setting to allow them to be educated and walk through a very thoughtful process. Not only talking about the different points that I just mentioned regarding social determinants of health, but you know, what are your top line concerns? Um, you know What are the goals that you have for yourself? Things such as, you know, I want to attend my daughter's wedding or I'm concerned about losing my job. We give them the ability to answer those questions in advance, then to provide that information in advance of the appointment to the provider, whether it may be the actual physician themselves or it could be a social worker, a community health worker, someone who can actually step in and solve um, the challenges in advance of an appointment. So what it does, whether it's telehealth, whether it's an in-person appointment, it gives both sides of the, of the relationship the opportunity to really approach it collaboratively and taking action. So telehealth has been great, but the more that you have information in the words of the patient in real time to take action upon, elevates trust and then has a direct relationship on, on the success of the telehealth or an in-person appointment as well.
1: That sounds like a great program. It almost, it's almost like you have a, a, a physician, a nutritionist with you all the time, but does that cross a line into more of like a, like a spying or listening to the patients? How do these doctors, how does this program gather this kind of information? Because that's a lot of personal day-to-day, hour-by-hour information. Exactly.
4: So number one, I do not support spying or listening to people because we all know somewhere my phone is picking up our conversation. I'm going to have ads on my phone right when we're done here. This is more related to the real-time voice of the patient themselves. To give you an example that spying or listening in would probably never identify. Um, We actually had a third party who did interviews with patients and also with providers after using the patient discovery solution. And one of the things, there was a, a couple that had been married for 62 years. And she was saying that she, after going through the experience with her husband, uncovered things that she never even knew about him through their relationship. And she said, one of those was he was afraid to go to physical therapy and they didn't know why. Come to find out, he was afraid of falling. So he never spoke that. There would be no way to actually identify that, but through this process, he was able to share it. Now in the the system, and this is the good thing, right? You can share what you want to share, not share what you, don't want to share. But what we're finding is, you know, there's a book by Stephen Covey called um, you know the Speed of Trust and People Moving at the Speed of Trust. And that's what we're finding through our providers and organizations that are using patient discovery with their patients that there's this elevation of trust. so they don't have to spy, they don't have to listen in. It is a true sincere sharing of information of what's important to people. And then the other important aspect is when the other side of that equation that the provider and the care team take action, that's meaningful to help the patient. So then during the next visit, they begin to share more and more and more when they see it truly is personal and individualized.
0: Teresa, I like that, the speed of trust. And it's interesting to know... I I love the concept of telehealth. And I have also sat in the room next to my husband while the doctor is discovering what what is needed about his condition. And you do, it's it's a much bigger sharing in a family, I think, of what's really important. Um, But I'm wondering if you can just describe how the patient discovery model works or the platform.
4: Okay. So we actually partner with providers, organizations. Right now, we're heavily focused in the oncology space. You know, it is very, um, very serious. It's a very expensive area. It is very high in needs. It's very critical that people take care of themselves and have the appropriate access to care. You know, you have some people that, you know, like we were saying, they have transportation, they have food challenges that we need to surround those people to make sure that they're able to get the best care. So what happens is you would have a patient who has been diagnosed. Well, the provider would then prescribe patient discovery to their patients and you know most everybody is familiar with the patient portal and you know your electronic medical record so they would prescribe it to the patient through the EMR so the patient then could go into the EMR click on their patient portal it would then take them to patient discovery so the patient discovery solution is actually modular there are many modules everything through diagnosis through survivorship with patients because your life changes every step along the way especially when you're on this longer journey of care and getting back to health so let's say that in the beginning they want to do an introduction so that would be prescribed they would then go into the system log in It, there's a video. We have our own amazing in-house production staff, and there's a video that talks about, for example, you know, you've just been diagnosed with cancer. This is a really scary time. And it walks them through the process of you may not realize that your healthcare team cares about you and what's important to you. And then it takes them through a very relational guided process of identifying social determinants of health. Now, depending on what they select, you know, earlier when I talked about housing and the different layers that are associated with that, if they select housing, it then starts to take them through those questions that are appropriate for housing. If they don't select housing, it's not going to take them down that path. So then maybe for the next visit. They want to talk to them about advanced care planning, which is very important to the family, to the individual, and also to the organization. Then maybe the next time they want to talk to them about clinical trials and then they would prescribe that. When it comes to health equity and clinical trials, I just saw yesterday that the FDA has actually uh, released information talking about the requirement to identify social determinants of health and really start to focus on health equity in regards to clinical trials. So one of the keys with that is the education piece. So as you can see, it's very modular from there, The patient has their own dashboard that is very customized as they go through the process, it changes, they can access it in between appointments, but every time that they make a change, it is actually updating in the EMR because of the connection. So the care team then can go in. They make sure that at least before, about three days before the appointment, that they have actually accessed it. And if there's anything they can solve in advance, they do so. It also trends, creates a longitudinal social record over time to see not only how has the patient journey from a clinical perspective changed, but what have they done to actually address the needs of that individual? And then long term, how have um, the actions that they've taken directly impacted outcomes?
0: Teresa, it seems to me that this whole world should create a lot of efficiencies in healthcare. And yet, it seems that, well, for example, I made an appointment for a colonoscopy. It was seven months out. I made an appointment with just my general um, physician for my annual checkup. It was four months out. And this does not sound to me like it's getting to be more efficient, but how. You know, how are you seeing, are you seeing these outcomes becoming more efficient? And, and what can you say about that to the average person who is frustrated about getting in to be able to see a doctor?
4: Well, I wish I could solve that situation, um, because I think we all experience that. Um, my sister, which that's a whole nother topic, but she was born with, um, multiple birth defects, she was never supposed to live. And the doctors told her, or told my parents when she was born, don't come back for 30 days, because there's nothing you can do and she'll be gone. Well, Of course, my parents said, that's not going to happen. And she passed away on January 28th at the age of 52. So oh my goodness. Yeah, I know. It's pretty it's Aww. pretty incredible, incredible. Her life was an absolute miracle. But my point being that over my lifetime I have been witness to not just simple, you know, I need to go to a PCP, you know, for a cold. I have experienced extremely difficult situations from neurology, you know, to I mean, to pain management, to wound care on my journey with her. And that is one of the most challenging aspects is having to sit there with somebody you care about and have somebody tell you, I'm sorry, you can't get in you know, for three months or six months. I don't know how to solve that simply, but that is one of the reasons I was so drawn to patient discovery because looking at it and saying, you may not see me now, but if my parents had the opportunity to express the needs and to connect with community-based organizations, with social workers, you know, with healthcare advocates... Maybe that wouldn't take a doctor's appointment, but there were still so many things that needed to be solved in the meantime that really mattered. And so we're trying to do our part to ease that, to ease the burden of discovery on those care teams, the providers and their teams, you know, that are, especially, you know, with COVID, you know, overworked, overburdened. So if we can shift this discovery of importance into the home, it lightens the load there, but also it creates a deep richness and a depth of information that's meaningful that it really hasn't been accessible in the past.
1: Well, and as we all know, being able to share what we've got going on, being asked the right questions, has such a huge impact in our own well being. So, as you gather the information with these patients and you work with them, Virtually, do you have connections with actual physical doctors, therapists in the communities that these people live, so you can refer them to a, you know, a human, if you will, if they need that kind of care?
4: That is a fantastic question. We personally, as Patient Discovery, um, do not have navigation services. However, I also think it's really important to realize that my belief is. Success is really rooted in a combination of people, like you just said, process, and technology, you know, working together. So we, there there are organizations out there that are truly compassionate and innovative, and they're trying to do the right thing. So one of the examples I would give you is an organization called Oncology Consultants out of Houston, Texas. They have a program called the Hope Initiative. They have patient advocates, you know, nurse navigators um, that speak multiple different languages who are able to reach out to those patients. So the people part of it is that I'm here for you. I'm going to do something about it. They then prescribe patient discovery to those patients. Now, when you are seriously ill, you are underserved, you are worrying about where your next meal may come from or how you're going to get to your next appointment, sometimes just having technology alone is not going to solve that full problem. But being able to have people to make that call to say, I know you're struggling with this and we want to help you. If you will please you know, walk through the patient discovery process. One example that they shared with us the other day they've had a patient for over a year and they've asked him multiple times, is there anything I can help you with? No. Well, they prescribed patient discovery, he didn't do it. They called him, they said, will you please do this? He didn't do it. They called one more time and he did it. When they received his information, he had six, on his first time walking through the process, six serious needs, including food, transportation, and support system for um, mental stress issues that they had no idea about. And he was like, "Well, if I knew this was you know what you meant." So it was the education piece. It was the guiding him through the process piece. It was the knowing that someone was there for him piece that really took people process and technology, banded it together, and really, you know, is now moving this individual towards success and a healthy journey.
0: Well, that's a great note to leave it on. Teresa West is the Chief Commercial Officer at Patient Discovery. If you'd like to learn more, it's just simply patientdiscovery.com. You can learn about this whole world of healthcare technology and the advances. Teresa, thank you so much for joining us on Cool Science Radio. You're doing great work out there.
4: Thank you. And thank you all so much for having me. And you all keep up the great work, too.